at least in part, about the resurrection. Um, and we started to hint at it, but we didn't get fully there. Now we're going to talk about it uh, before we get to chapter 23. Um, real quick before I forget, something I failed to mention last week. When you talk about Gog and Magog, and the fathers and, um, and then early medieval Christianity saw the Huns and the Mongols as a probably the clearest version of Gog and Magog in their place and time in history. For them, that was sort of the fulfillment of it. Now, they said themselves, this is not the fullest of fulfillment of it because Gog and Magog is kind of a spiritual category, but they said for us today, this is, this is what we're looking at. These are the barbarians that are coming from north, you know, under the sovereign will of God. It's the Huns and the Mongols. What I failed to mention last week, and this is really important, is that the Mongols and the Huns actually saw themselves as fulfilling this role. Right? So, Attila the Hun, his nickname was the Scourge of God. That was his nickname. He was known as that. And he was more than happy to, to play into this role as the left hand of God in, in judgment, right? To, uh, especially towards the West. We talked about the story of Attila the Hun meeting Pope Leo and all of that last week. Well, there is, there is recorded statements of these guys, these, uh, these barbarian warlords, saying things to the West along the lines of, uh, your sins must have been very great for the God of heaven to set me loose upon you. <laughs> this was the kind of things that they would say. So, all right, so they, they heard these stories about, you know, the, the north coming in at the end of the world, and they, they were more than happy to, you know, see themselves as the, as the fulfillment of that. So they would say things like, you know, the God of heaven has decreed that, you know, we're supposed to take over this land, so why don't you go ahead and start giving us tribute. Let's go ahead and, go ahead and start that process. So, save us the trouble. Yeah, save us the trouble. Yeah. This is God's will, you know. So they would say, uh, not to say, not to say by any stretch of the imagination that they were believers or Christians, but the idea that they would fulfill that role in Scripture was so clear that even they were on board with it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. So that was just something I failed to mention, just to hammer the point home. Let's move on to um, the latter third or latter half of. Isaiah 22. So I'm going to start with um, I'm going to start with verse 15. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who was over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here? that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. And there you shall die. And there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, 
and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. Okay, let's stop right there just for a second. So do you remember last week, uh, we kept coming back to Revelation 20, and um, because that is that is the last place in Scripture that talks about Gog and Magog, you know, the north coming in at the, at the, end, of, at the end of the old world. And it says in Revelation 20 that this happens at a time of resurrection. Do you remember that? We talked about this last week. Does that ring a bell? Um, death and Hades give up their dead at this point in time. So now, right after, Isaiah gives a prophecy to Gog in the far north. He says, Now you, you, you false steward, you think that there's a place for you in the grave. So you see the connection there, right? This is, this is uh, the story of Revelation 20. He says to Shebna, you think there's a place for you in the grave. No, this is a time of resurrection. Now this is for the church a time of, of, of uh, this, is a, this is their salvation. This is a time of hope and glory and joy. Uh, but it's not that way for everybody. Um, there is a lot of speculation. He was either he was either a a part of the governor's office, like a like a secretary, or he was a part of the priesthood, or it could have been both. It, it could be both. But those are the two. Those are the two ideas. Um, the same with Eliakim, his replacement. No one knows for sure what all of his responsibilities were. He does show up in Second Kings, Eliakim. Um, he was he was connected with the um, with the government office because he ends up being a negotiator between Israel and the Assyrians. So he has sort of a he has a mediator kind of role politically. Um, there's some speculation that he might have also been uh, a part of the priesthood, but that's not really known for sure. So it's kind of it's kind of speculative. Anything else on Shebna? It doesn't really say even what Shebna did wrong, but it's very clear that God is not happy with him. Anything else on Shebna? He just has a bad name. Who would name a child Shebna? <laughs> <laughs> Who would name a child Eliakim? <laughs> oh, um, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Now get this, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Does that sound familiar? It's Revelation. Revelation, yeah. It is, uh, yeah, in Revelation, Christ applies this to himself. He's the one who opens doors that no one can open, and he has the key of the house of David. All right. Plus, gives that authority to his church. What you forgive. Yes. 
Yes, to, to the one who overcomes and all of this stuff, yeah. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, it's um, this is when he's talking to the Church of Philadelphia, I believe. Don't, don't quote me on that. Uh, I'm sorry to be late on this. Yes. <laughs> but 2 Kings 18.37 reads, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, there you go. who was over the household, Shibna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their to clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshikah. Rabshikah was the Assyrian general or king or yes. whoever who was threatening Jerusalem. So the question is, what does it mean that he's over the household? Is that talking about the household of the priest or the household of yeah, the government all his household? Who knows? Yeah. Who knows about that? But these, all these personages were bringing bad news, and they were warning over the utter doom of Jerusalem. Yes. And brought the news to Hezekiah. Yes. So that's that's the historical context we have. So you've got so many people, and Walton has talked about this. You've got so many people at this point in time in Israel's history who are who are just giving good news. Things are going great. Our defenses are strong. You know, we're gonna we're gonna withstand all this. And then you've got a remnant, a select <coughs> few, and Isaiah is one of these, Jeremiah is another, that keep saying, repent and keep wearing the sackcloth and the ashes and they're they're mourning at a time of eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, right? This is repentance in the last days. So uh, Eliakim is part of that. You know, he's he's not just only telling what people want to hear. Yeah. He's bringing the truth, the the hard, dark truth. Well, except for God delivered Jerusalem under under Hezekiah. So I mean, they're seeing doom and gloom. They're seeing yes. grave. God is saying, God is saying salvation. So I think this goes along with what you're saying here about Isaiah. That the focus is not on death, it's on resurrection. Mm -hmm. And it's on look to God. Yeah. It's on look at look to see what God is doing. Um, so the passage here in verse 15 calls him steward. Yeah. And he's not a true not truly in the line in the line here. See? Um talking about Shebna. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting word choice, isn't it? Yeah. Usually that means that there's somebody set up that's not a... You're a he's a placeholder. Yeah, placeholder. He's a placeholder. placeholder. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll see We'll see that Eliakim is a placeholder, too. But, yeah, the point here seems to be with Shebna that he's not the real deal. He's just sort of been holding this office. And, and what's the deal with God putting him on the ball and throwing him? And throwing him? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It makes me think of the... Uh, of, it makes me think of the Olympic Games. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Or a child's story. Or a child. Or a child. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Pretty distinctive. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, very, it's very visual. It's yeah. very... Uh, it can whirl you around. It almost, yeah. it almost sounds like it's making sport of you. You know, you know God is in love with baseball. Oh, yeah. oh, it starts out the Bible in the big inning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had to bring that in. <laughs> Wind him up and throw him out. <laughs> and I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So this is this is a pretty good thing here. He's setting up a good leader. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring, and issue every small vessel, from the cups to all the flagons. 
All right, now, this part is important. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. There are two ways you can read this. Okay. I'm going to give the two ways, and then I'll say which one I think is probably the more profound and correct way of reading this. He could be repeating what he was saying about Shebna. You know, I'm fastening Eliakim here to the household. This is going to be my guy. And the peg that was in place will give way. And it will be cut down and fall. Shebna is going to be no more. So that's one way to read it. But I think actually what he's saying is that after all of this and all this good stuff, Eliakim too is going to die. This guy is not the Messiah. This guy's good. He's so good, and he's such a good leader. He's opening doors that no one else can open. He's closing doors no one can shut. He has the key of the house of David on his shoulder. Right? This is such a Christological figure. We don't really talk about him that much, but at this particular moment, when things are so dark, to have a good leader, I've been watching Band of Brothers with Angela, to have a good leader in a time of darkness, like you worship this guy. He's such a good person and you have to have someone to follow and God says don't forget this is not the guy he too will fall away he too will die and this peg also will fall away this is not the Messiah keep watching keep waiting does that make sense yes. yeah. he represents the resurrection of God but he is not the resurrection of God. he is not the resurrection in the no, life he's representing okay so that's a perfect segue what does this have to do with resurrection? The name Eliakim means established by God. That's what the name means. Okay. Now, um, Cyril of Alexandria, who was a church father from, I want to say, the three or four hundreds, in his commentary on this, makes an offhand comment that the name Eliakim means resurrection of God. And when I first read this, I thought, that's not true, because I know that it means established by God. But this is a good reminder for all of us that these guys, these, these, these early giant stones that the church is built upon, they have an understanding of the scriptures that we need to, we need to pay careful attention to. So when they say something like this, let's look and see, well, what did he mean by that? Why would he say something like that? Um... These guys are not perfect. These church fathers are far from perfect. They, they argued and they had to hash things out just like the rest of us. But they were blessed with a deep understanding of the scriptures that we can still benefit from today. And it turns out that he was right. <laughs> and I was wrong. So let's do a little bit of a word study, shall we? And let's do a word study on the name Eliakim and see what it has to say. And I have a handout here to give out. Okay, thank you. So I'm sorry we're going to get into the weeds a little bit here, but I think this is worth doing because uh, because I think you'll see that this is actually an important thread in a lot of what we've been looking at in the scriptures, not just in Isaiah, but also with Craig's study on Genesis and just our understanding of covenant theology and all of this stuff. So. So we said that um, Eliakim means, in, in the most obvious sense of the word, established by God. 
And that, that part that means established is the last part of the word, the kin, the K-I-M part. Now keep in mind, this is transliterating, this is Hebrew, right? So it's not actually K-I-M. It's, that's how it would be if you were to turn it into English. Um, it's, uh, it's actually, uh, it's, two, it's two letters, a uh, letter that would be either Q or K, and then the one for N. Um, and the vowel is a little bit ambiguous, as vowels in Hebrew are. Sometimes it would be an I, sometimes it would be a U. These vowels were not, we talked about this a little bit last week, these vowels were not codified into written Hebrew until the year 1000. Right, so at the time of Isaiah, at the time of the fathers, and for most of the history of these texts, the vowels were were ambiguous, right? And that was that's just how the Hebrew language worked. It was just a different kind of language than what we have today. So that's important to remember because it's not fully clear how many times this word shows up. And either it showed up somewhere between 620 and 630 times in the Hebrew text. Now that's a lot of uses of one word. Which word? Kum. Kum. To establish. Yeah. To establish. Yeah. Um, it shows up a lot in description. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Some of those times. Some of those times. Uh, it's not even translated. Right. It's such a common word that sometimes it's used in a phrase, and so you don't always even see that word directly translated into English, but it shows up a lot. This is a very important word in Hebrew. That's K-I-M? Mm -hmm. uh, that's how we would That's how we would do yep. it, yeah, for Eliakim. Eliakim. Uh, God, God established, or God establishes. Um, is there a Hebrew word for resurrection? Uh, yes and no. Um, yeah, we'll... Uh, We'll get to that. It's the same. Oh, we'll get to that. Ending on the name, just like you have Jehoiakim. Yes. Okay. Yes. Actually, actually, Jehoiakim is Yahweh establishes. Okay. It's it's actually the same name. It just Yahweh. switches from Yah Yahweh. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Jehoiakim was actually his Jehoiakim. name was Eliakim, and it changes just like Saul becomes Paul. Eliakim changed to Jehoiakim. This is a different Eliakim. It's not the same guy. There were at least three different Eliakims in the story. One of them was in Jesus' lineage, not this one. All right, so the most common use of this word is establishing the covenant. By far, the most common time this word shows up is about the covenant. So, stands to reason then, if you think, well, what is God establishing? The first thing that should come to mind Especially if you're if you're if you're a uh, you know a dyed in the wool Hebrew is the covenant throughout Genesis and Craig each time God says I will establish my covenant with you Noah Abraham it just keeps on going he continuously uses this word I will. I will establish it, I will make it stand, I will erect it, however you translate this. This is a very important word in our, you know, theological covenant understanding. I have a question. Yeah. Because you know, we have two covenants, old covenant and new covenant. And is, is, it, is it specifically maybe talking more about the new covenant? Well, that's what we're getting to. <laughs> that's what we're getting to. That's the yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. That, which covenant? Yeah. But when God says, I will establish my covenant, 
this is the word. All right, so, you know, as a word for things standing or being established, it shows up in other ways, and I have a few examples. This word shows up well over 600 times, so I didn't even come close to putting all the different ways that this word is used. But I put a few interesting ones here, ones that will be familiar. Um, Arise, O God, is a common petition in the Psalms. That's a common prayer in the Psalms. David says, Arise, O God, you know, defeat my enemies, show your face, do this stuff. Um, that word arise is the same word. Alright, so that's another case where this shows up a lot. Um, when people are sleeping and they stand up after sleep, right, they are arising. This is the same word. Alright, so for those of us who see um, sleeping and waking as a picture of death and resurrection, this should start to, you know, you should start to see this in your mind a little bit. Alright, there are a few examples, not many, of this word clearly being about resurrection. And I've put those here. One of them is, and this is the most interesting one to me, is closer to the bottom where Jesus says in Aramaic, little girl, get up. Okay, that's the Aramaic version of this word. So Christ says, Christ uses this word, the same word that he's been saying to Noah and to Abraham and to all these Old Testament saints. Now he says it to this little girl. And he says to you, get up. And of course she does. All right, now... It's worth pointing out, since we already talked about sleeping and waking, it's worth pointing out that that's what they said about this little girl, too. Remember, they said that she was dead, and Jesus said, no, she's only asleep. Right? So you see this relationship between sleeping and waking and death and resurrection. This is a picture that we live out every day of death and resurrection. All right. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he shall upon the earth. He will stand upon the earth. Right. That is clearly about resurrection. Right. And that is the same word. Okay. There's another one in 2 Kings. Um, I've got that there. He revived and stood. The word is, is translated stood. He, he, he got up. He was established. He, he resurrected. Um, you asked if there's a word clearly for resurrection. Um, they're sort of there's a word for, uh, there's a word for the word revived that's used revived in that verse. It's the closest thing. But it's still not quite there. It's not. Someone brought back the life in the Old Testament. This guy. This guy was. This guy. They, as soon as the man touched the bones of, Eli of Elisha, there's a misspelling there, of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. What about the little boy, the little, the child, the Elijah? Yeah, I think that was a different word. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't remember. Yeah. Um, the Greek word for resurrection is very precise, right? And Greek was just a more precise language. So when Greek talks about resurrection, like there's no question, it's talking about resurrection. Uh, it's closer to English in its precision. Will you say the Greek word? Anastasis, something like that. Ah, yes. Yeah, like some, something sun. like that. Yeah, like the sun. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That, exactly. That word uh, is in Job in the Septuagint. 
which is only two in Greek, which is right. only all we've got is the right. Greek. Right. <laughs> Darn it. <Yeah. laughs> um, well, and that's significant. That's how they interpreted this. They understood that when it's saying, at last he will stand upon the earth, this is talking about resurrection. And these were Jews. These are Greek, years Greek-speaking Christ. Jews around 200 B.C. And they understood that this is about resurrection. They also understood the virgin birth. They understood a lot of things. Um, so, so when the church fathers say something, they're, they're, they're in, they have in the back of their minds all of the scripture together. Right, and it just comes out in a simple statement, like, "Well, the name Elijah means resurrection of God." Well, on the surface, it doesn't, but Cyril of Alexandria and Augustine and these other guys—they have such a, a depth of knowledge of the Scripture that they're not just quoting one verse, right? They're quoting all of the times that this word is used, and they have an understanding of what this word means in the grand scope of Scripture, not just in this one verse. So, Eliakim does, in fact, mean resurrection of God in the grand scope of all of Scripture. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, any comments or questions with this? Uh, those church fathers weren't wasting time watching television. No. <laughs> or Fox News or not. <laughs> yeah. They didn't, have, they didn't have the kind of distractions we did. Yeah, they... Uh, this was their job. Their job was to be was to be uh, uh, building building stones for the church to grow off of. Sitting in an oil lamp, an oil lamp, you know, Earthquake, and they got up and walked around the city. Saints got up out of the grave and walked around. Right, right. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Look at that earlier today. When the the dead got up and walked yes. around. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, Which is a type of resurrection that God raised them somehow. Well, I mean, I don't think I don't think people know fully what happened there. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of it's, it's very mysterious. It's only do. one sentence in the gospel. Right. He just Why throws it out there. But they did have to die again, right? They did have to die. Yes. Yeah, they didn't yeah, stay. They, they did. Like Jesus did. He's the only one that stayed. Shall we call that, it the that, first resurrection? They didn't have to die again. Well, they just. It didn't stay dead. They were like ghosts. I think this is an important point that I really want to I want to really want to bring home about about how to approach the church fathers and to understand that it takes some humility to do that because they'll say things that just sound kind of strange to our ears because we're living 2,000 years later right and so they'll say things that seem on the surface you're like well why would you say something like that but then you have to approach it from what I'm calling this sort of mystical approach to the scriptures, where they're t- they're seeing all of these threads tied together, the big picture patterns, and then they say something that has all of that behind it. Right. Here's another example. Um, Tertullian came up with the word Trinity. Right. That word didn't exist before Tertullian. Right. And he said that as a way, in one word, to encapsulate all of these different scriptures that talk about the Godhead. Right. That's an amazing thing. And we still use that word today. 
right? And so he says this word in his ear, and you're like, well, that's kind of a weird thing to say. But he's got all of the scriptures coming in behind this one word, and he's saying it in a very concise way. So that's... it takes a little bit of humility to approach the fathers, and I think that's an important thing to, to bring out. Now that that's a Greek word, right? Trinity. Um, it's either Greek or Latin. I'm not sure. Well, obviously, not sure. tri means three. Yeah. Do you know what the unity? Probably yeah. unity. unity. Probably unity. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. the, the three, three unity. Yeah. 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 But again, not sure if it's Greek or Latin. I would have yeah. to look well, into that. Yeah. One um, any further thoughts on this before we move on? Eliakim was a great type of Christ in a time of darkness, in a type, uh, in, in, in a time of a lot of uh, horror and bloodshed and fear. Um, he was a great type of Christ, as both, well, as a type of king and possibly a type of priest. We don't know fully, you know, what all his job description was, but he was not. The guy. He was a type. He wasn't the. Simply giving hope. Yeah. Think about it. Right. In the midst of turmoil. Well, yeah, and also, and also, calling to repentance. You know, saying, "Keep your eyes fixed on God here." Well, uh, Solomon and Samson are also both types of the returning Christ. Christ Mm -hmm. of glory. They both fail in the end. Yes. So they were not the guy too. Yeah. (laughs) The peg will fall from the, you know, from the doors. Okay, so I believe that gets us through chapter 22. Now, let's transition from the extreme north to the extreme west. The oracle concerning Tyre. Tyre was a city of the Phoenicians. We are close to, if not right on the Mediterranean at this point. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste, without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast, the merchants of Sidon across the sea have filled you, and on many waters your revenue was the grain of Shibor, the harvest of the Nile, you were the merchant of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea has spoken, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither labored nor given birth, I have neither reared young men nor brought up young women. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read this whole section and then we can go back and talk about any parts that you want to talk about. When the report comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish over the report about Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish, wail, O inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? Who has purposed this against Tyre, the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Cross over your land like the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish, There is no restraint anymore. He has stretched out his hand over the sea. He has shaken the kingdoms. The Lord has given command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there, 
you will have no rest. Um, is there anything that you see in that section that we should talk about together? There's a lot of different place names here. And again, like we talked about last week, it's easy, you know, from a historical grammatical perspective to get lost in the weeds here with all of these place names. We have to ask the question, you know, what does this have to say for us today? And it's not always easy, especially with the Old Testament prophets, to to glean stuff for us from passages like this. But here's here's something to keep in mind. When I talk about Tarshish, that's Spain. In the in the mind of the ancient Near East, you don't get any further west than that. And so, just like Gog is the is the end of the map, it's the extreme north. Now we're talking about the extreme west. So Isaiah is still making proclamations to the, the corners of the earth, the ends of the earth. Um, what he has to say here stretches all the way to the edge of the map. And in the case of the west, you get to Tarshish, and then after that, it's just the sea of chaos from then on in. And that's, that's us, by the way. You know, that's where, where whatever is at the, you know, on the other side of the Atlantic, so... You can imagine that you come through in Spain, you know, the yeah. little opening the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa. That's it. That's it. It's also important to remember, I think, with this stuff, that it's it's not just the, well, for us it's the West. For them, and remember we looked at all these ancient maps last week. I know all of you weren't here last week, but um, I can pass it around again if you think it'd be worth doing. This is, this is what ancient maps looked like. Very different from what we have today. Some of these are Greek, some of these are Christian, some of these are BC, some of them are AD. I just threw a whole bunch of them on there in no particular order. What you'll see with the vast majority of these is that east is, is at the top of the map and west is at the bottom. So north and south are left and right if you're, if you're tracking. They turn everything sideways. Everything sideways. So east is, east is up. Right. What that means is that now Isaiah is proclaiming to the not just uh, not just the extreme west, but the bottom of the, of the world, the bottom of the map. Right. This is where this is where Jonah tried to go to get away from God. Remember? Yeah. This is one of the problems I have. Also, I try to teach Isaiah is you know how does it apply to us today, and I. I'm not sure that all of it does apply to us today, but, but some of it does. Some of it does. And in this passage you just read here, it seems to me in verse 9, that this would kind of be a payoff verse here, that the Lord hosts for purposes to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honor of the earth. So that so to me seems to be kind of this general principle that yes. God has a tendency to humble pride wherever he wants. Well, in my, in my view of this stuff, and it's sort of the way I approach this, and this isn't mine, I shouldn't call it mine because I'm so influenced by other people that are reading all this stuff. These big picture categories and people groups and nations, they're playing out the drama, right, of what God is doing. And so you have an entire people group that has something to teach us. Right about our relationship with God. And then there's another group that has something else to teach us. What God says through Cush is not the same thing as what God says through Assyria. 
and what God says through Assyria is not the same thing as what God says through Tyre, right? So there's something in particular about Tyre, I think, that's actually that's very important to the grand story. And it's, a, it's like a parable. It's a playing out of this stuff. Now, this is not the only time that Tyre shows up in Scripture, right? So you can look at the other places in Tyre and see, well, what, what does Tyre tend to represent more often than not in Scripture? And the strongest and starkest example is Ezekiel 28. So, let's turn to Ezekiel 28. This passage will be familiar to many, if not most of you. Ezekiel um, was not exactly a contemporary of Isaiah, but close to it. Um, Isaiah lived a little earlier. Ezekiel lived a little later. I believe, if I remember correctly, at this point, when Ezekiel is prophesying, the northern kingdom has already fallen. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think Ezekiel and Daniel were contemporary. So that's, yeah, that's, yeah, well, so, so yeah. that's after the fall of Judah. Daniel actually comes up in this chapter, yeah. so there you go. There you go. Judah had fallen also. Yeah. So are we in the Babylonian captivity yes. at this yes. point? Yes. Okay, yes. fair yes. enough, fair yes. enough. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, is a common name for Ezekiel, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud, so already we're seeing a similarity, right? There's a pride, pride. issue with Tyre. And you have said, I am a god. I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you're but a man, no god. You make your heart like the heart of a god. Oh, you're indeed wiser than Daniel, no secrets hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you've made wealth for yourself. God is mocking Tyre at this point. Uh, this is a holy sarcasm. I have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and your trade, you've increased your wealth, and your hearts become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you made your heart like the heart of a god, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations. They shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and there you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. So do you see the connection there between, and this is just conceptually how they saw the world, between the ocean and the underworld? It's sort of the same thing. And part of that's because it's the bottom of the map, right? So it's the, it is the under part of the world. The ocean is at the bottom of everything. So there's a connection in how they see it between Sheol, the grave, and the ocean. So that's why Jonah being swallowed by the whale is a picture of death and resurrection, right? Because for him to go down to the bottom of the ocean, that's supposed to bring to mind death, right? It's, it's, a, it's another form of the grave. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Moreover, he's not done yet, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, and here it gets really interesting. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Doesn't it? Every precious stone was your covering. Don't forget when you're reading this that dragons were covered in stones. Don't, that's important. Don't forget that. 
sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and grafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. These are not random stones. These are the priestly stones. These are the stones in Revelation that the city Jerusalem is going to be used with. All right, this is, yeah. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. This should bring to mind Revelation 12, when the dragon is cast out. I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground, I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuary. So I brought fire out from your midst, it consumed you, I turned you to ashes. Remember Genesis 3, the ashes in the sight of all who saw you. This is the doom of the serpent to be lowered to the ashes. Alright, it goes on, and then it talks about Sidon, Tyre and Sidon are sort of twin places, so this goes on for a while, but do you see that Tyre is a, is a symbol of uh, not just pride, it's satanic pride. This is, in the grand drama, they're playing the part of Satan. You see that in here. Alright, so... So it's sort of like America in a lot of ways. So, so Tyre, Tyre's pride came from her great wealth as a merchant, as a, as a merchant's hub, right? So all these nations would come through Tyre, and because of their constant trading, Tyre just kept growing and growing and growing in wealth. Unfortunately, you're right. That is very similar to us. Unfortunately. Well, uh, there are Christian or pseudo-Christian sects that believe our founding documents to be divinely inspired. <clears throat> that is making a god. <laughs> that is making a god out of the the writers of, of the Constitution. It is. It is based in certain biblical principles, for sure. The idea that we are all made, <laughs> that all men are created equal, right? You, you don't get that apart from Genesis one. You can't get to something like that apart from Genesis one. But I agree. That's not scripture. Otherwise, it's not scripture. we wouldn't have to change it. All the time. Yes. <laughs> Oh, it wouldn't need. But a this is this is part yes. of the idolatry of, of the United States. Over over half the signers of the Declaration of Independence were pastors. Say what now? They were pastors. They were churches. They were, they were ministers. They were. They were. Well, I think we can say both at the same time. I think we can say that it was built on. It was built on many solid principles that we would say are founded in Scripture. But this is not heaven on earth. But it's, it's not. not but it's not Scripture. No, it's not scripture. Yeah, it's founded on scripture, but it's not, but it's not scripture. Yes, there is a there is a clear distinction to be made there. Well, if you look if you look at the difference in Revelate, the the revolution of America versus the revolution of France, oh, it was, it's a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. So, so someone has pointed out the difference with the American Revolution was it ended. Mm -hmm. It ended. <laughs> it ended. The French Revolution never ended. All right, I want to I want to point out one more thing before we get to the end of our time. Um, 
In that day, I'm at verse 15, in that day Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years like the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it will happen to Tyre. As in the song of the prostitute, and I think at this point, and I think the ESV thinks this as well, that Isaiah is quoting a, a song from that time. It's in quotations here. This is the song of the prostitute. Take a harp, go about the city, O forgotten prostitute, make sweet melodies, sing many songs that you may be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre, and she will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord. It will not be stored or hoarded, but her merchandise will supply abundant food and find clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. So this is a little... It's a little strange in how you read this because on the one hand, it's saying that she will return to being a prostitute at the time that God shows up, but that her prostituting will be somehow for God and it will be a good thing. It's a little, it's a little weird how this reads. Uh, the Septuagint, the Septuagint is, uh, is much more interesting and I think much more profound in how it renders this. So if I may... I would like to read that for you real quick. The end of this chapter. Um, let me pull it up. Sometimes it's just a distraction to point out the little minor differences between the Hebrew and the Septuagint. They agree. They, they, they agree in 99% of the time. And so to, to focus on the, on the differences is, I think, most of the time just, just a, an unnecessary distraction. But in this case, I think it's actually pretty important. Um, and her trade and her gain shall be holiness to the Lord. It shall not be gathered for them, but for those that dwell before the Lord, even all her trade to eat and drink and be filled, and for a covenant and a memorial before the Lord. So Isaiah here, in the Septuagint reading of Isaiah 23, says that Tyre, at the end of time, when God shows up, Tyre will be the place where there will be a covenant and memorial feast before the Lord. A time of eating and drinking for a covenant and for a memorial. Can you think of a feast that's both a covenant feast and a memorial feast that is that involves eating and drinking? Jesus feast. This is a Eucharistic prophecy, right? Yeah. Tyre, which is sort of the most extreme version of the Gentiles, when we say that it's just sort of an exaggerated version of the Gentiles at the extreme end of the world, mm. or having access to the extreme end of the world. This will be the place where God has his Eucharist with his people. It's also a version of Babylon. There's similar. So you've got, you've got Babylon as Lucifer to the east and Tyre as Satan to the west. <coughs> so you're surrounded. surrounded. It's all around. Um, I wanted to point that out because I think that's, it's set, to me this is such a clear picture of the Eucharist. A, a feast that is both for covenant and for memorial. This is exactly how we talk about the Eucharist. Yeah. This is the blood of the new covenant. Yeah. Do this in remembrance of me. Covenant and memorial. 
Um, he sells it. That's exactly what he says. You will do this in remembrance. There you go. This is the covenant. Do this in remembrance. Um, can't say it one player. There is this. There is this. Uh, this thing in sort of the. Oh, how do I say this? There's this thing in in the tradition surrounding scripture, and at no point is this very, is this explicitly in the words of scripture, but it shows up enough around scripture that it's worth talking about. Jewish tradition talks about this. The fathers talk about this, and this shows up in some of the old like medieval hymns and stuff like that. There's this idea that Leviathan which is the devil, becomes the food of the elect. Um, there is a place in Psalm 74 that hints at this, but it's not quite that explicit. But Leviathan becomes the food of God's people. It is no accident that the fish was a Eucharistic symbol. That's not an accident, right? This stuff doesn't happen arbitrarily. Right, and so, so keep that in mind when you're reading stuff like this, that on the one hand, Tyre is a symbol for the, the worst, the symbol for the devil, the symbol for Leviathan, remember the, the sea monster, right? But in the great inversion of what God is doing, when he flips things on its head, this will be the place of the Eucharist. In Job, God talks about having Leviathan on his hook. Yes. <coughs> Catching him like a meal. Yeah. Right. And the first thing that, that Christ, well, not the first thing, what Christ does on his resurrection morning is he eats fish, fish, fish with his disciples. Fish. This stuff does not happen by accident, y'all. Mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's, he almost yeah. repeats the exact same words. He'll cast your, he'll go ahead and cast your, um, that's on the other side because he asked yeah. him, have you caught anything? You know, have you got yeah. any food? And he says, cast your nets. They, 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 they bring out food. Let's end there. Thank you all for your attention. We'll look at chapter 24 next week.